Increasingly, we Americans occupy alternate universes. The world is so polarized now. You've got mm -hmm. Donald Trump and social media and people screaming at each other. Are you part of that polarization? It's a good question. I don't think so. Late last night, just minutes before midnight, President Trump taking to Twitter to slam Oprah. When was the last time you had a really enlightening conversation about politics on Twitter or Facebook? Chances are you've walked away from your keyboard angrier and more entrenched in your views. Our political leaders don't exactly set a good example. President Trump last night tweeted, I too have a nuclear button. But there's also a whole darker world online of trolls, racist memes, hate-filled comment sections and increasingly virulent culture wars. Some people even think that the dark side of the internet has hijacked the White House. I am your voice! Is it inevitable that the internet and social media drive us to the extremes? Or do they just hold up a mirror to an already divided culture? You're listening to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about trying to understand the forces driving us further apart and what can be done about them. It's presented by Ian Leslie and by Matthew Taylor, and that's me. As always, this podcast isn't about orchestrating an argument between people with opposing views, plenty of places you can hear that, but about understanding the polarising political moment we're living through right now. A quick recap on what we've covered so far in our conversations. In the first episode of Polarised, we talked about whether there's been a rise in authoritarianism in Britain. And, and I think we concluded that it's probably more a matter of both sides becoming more entrenched. Then in our last programme, we asked whether we can be manipulated online through psychological targeting. We decided the evidence might be a bit sketchy. I, I kind of felt that if people or had already had a predisposition, this stuff was quite powerful in pushing people into acting on it. But I guess we might have taken slightly different views. You'll have to listen uh, to, to spot that subtlety. <laughs> in this episode, we're asking, has internet culture poisoned politics? And we've got an expert guest coming up in a moment to talk about this with us. But before we get started, this is a segment where Matthew and I lay our cards on the table uh, and set out what we know, or think we know, very different things, uh, about this episode's topic. And we're calling it Full Disclosure. So, Matthew, I understand you've actually been doing some reading over the weekend on this. I did, yeah. I read uh, Kill All Normies by Angela Nagel, uh, which commended itself to me primarily because it's only 120 pages long. But even if the reasons for me reading it were rather superficial, uh, it did have a powerful effect to me. So the first thing was this just took me into a world that I didn't really know much uh, about. And I was quite glad I didn't know much about it, the word of trolls and 4chan and extreme misogyny and other things. On, and you, did, is this a world you know? Only very superficially. So I haven't really gone into, you know, I haven't looked at, at 4chan. I haven't really kind of investigated that that sort of darker. It is a kind of a world or a series of worlds unto themselves. So you don't necessarily have to get into unless you're unless, unless you're seeking it out. Um, so I know some of the, the, the names, some of the catchphrases and so on. Um, but I haven't really investigated it. How did you, how did you find of, that it, world? It's a kind of iceberg thing, isn't it? Which is there were a couple of things like Gamergate that I'd come across yeah, But this was the tip of the iceberg poking up through the kind of mainstream media. I had no idea about this kind of rotten hulk that was under 
the surface. But there was one kind of political point she made that really made me kind of, you know, want to go and almost grab people in the street and say, do you think this is true? She argues that the, the, the kind of stuff we're talking about here, the kind of racist memes, the hate-filled comment sections, the extreme misogyny, the online bullying, undertaken particularly by uh, the right, she says that the left has to take some responsibility because she argues that the kind of countercultural movement, the kind of sense that attacking the establishment and the status quo is inherently a good thing to do, is something that starts with the left in the 60s, in modern, in modern times, that you can see it in critical theory, you can see it in modern art, you can see it in radical comedy. And the irony, she says, is it turns out that having, as it were, created this this excitement about being transgressive, the left then finds that actually the right is much better at it and much more willing to be really transgressive. Wow. Um, that's a that's a powerful, powerful argument. It, it, in a way, it, it's a kind of evidence that the old right-wing or conservative argument that if you transgress against certain social norms, you know, everything's up for grabs and we'll end up in a kind of chaos that maybe there was something in it. I couldn't go back in time and say, uh, I want to stop the transgressions against some of the norms of 30, 40, 50 years ago, because many of them were necessary and powerful transgressions, right? If you're kind of transgressing against norms that are racist or sexist or um in other ways, oppressive, then that's something to be celebrated. But I can also see the argument that says, yeah, okay, but the inevitable consequence of that is that all of these norms become pro- provisional and, 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 and up, up for grabs. And it should be no surprise that the, the right are just as capable of weaponizing that fact as, as the left, if not, if not more so. I think the other short point she makes, which I, I think led to being a controversial figure, is she also argues that the left move away from a kind of universalist account of what it was striving for into this emphasis on identity. That this, she says, is kind of perfect grist to the mill for kind of the alt-right on the internet because it's constantly generating stuff that's, on the one hand, very easy to take the mickey out of and on the other hand, is as alienating to ordinary people as some of the stuff that the right's generating. And I, I think once you throw into the mix attention, the importance that we place on attention in the modern world and the way that the uh, that social media in particular is sort of driven by the need to get attention. And you add that to the, the, this pleasure or satisfaction that people take in, in uh, transgressing norms, then you end up in a situation where, well, we're going to talk about all, all of this. Hello, Whitney. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. To help us understand how fringe online culture has made its way into the mainstream, and we're joined on the line by one of the leading voices on this, Whitney Phillips. Yep. Sound good good to us. Yeah. Okay, great. Whitney is Assistant Professor of Communication, Culture and Digital Technologies at Syracuse University in the States. Whitney is also the author of books, including This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. And last month, she wrote The Oxygen of Amplification, Better Practices for Reporting on Extremists, Antagonists and Manipulators Online for the Data and Society Research Institute. So I'm fascinated to know, first of all, how you started to, uh, how you got interested in, in, in this? And what, uh, at what point did you 
start researching the influence of online trolling on the mainstream? I started um, the work in 2008. And the reason that I did was because I was incoming into a PhD program and wanted to study political humor. And in the run-up to the 2008 election, I was spending a lot of time online just kind of seeing what sorts of humorous things were taking place. And simultaneous to that, my dear brother, who at the time was 16, maybe 16, I think— he was a troll and <laughs> kept trying kept trying to make me go onto this website called 4chan that he said I would really like. And at the time, I didn't realize that he was trolling me in, in suggesting that. <laughs> I came to realize that very quickly. So, But what I found that was what I was not expecting and immediately piqued my research interest was that there was significant overlap, even in 2008, between the kind of weird, raucous, deeply offensive, highly mimetic stuff that was happening on 4chan, and then these other more clearly political spaces. It wasn't a one-to-one overlap, but many of the jokes were being sort of shared and they were seated in both places, and that overlap was really interesting and also kind of worrying to me because a lot of what was happening on 4chan was so offensive. So I started mapping um, the overlap between more traditional political spaces and then these uh, kind of rogue, not political in any traditional sense, but certainly engaged in um, political conversations and certainly a lot of offensive political humor. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. So kid brothers do have a use. Um, (laughs) Just so we're all clear and, and, and our listeners are clear and I'm clear on, on, on what we're talking about. Can we just sort of define some basic terms? So what is a troll and, and, and what is trolling? Um, and then and then just say a little bit about, about 4chan and, and what that is and why that is, is influential. The word trolling has undergone a very complicated transformation over the last 10 years. So what I was studying initially was what I now refer to as subcultural trolling. So it's a very specific point of self-identification that emerged on and around 4chan. So 4chan is a simple image board um, that was created in 2003. And although the term troll had existed before 2003, typically when people use the word troll or troller, they were, it was an accusation that you leveled against someone else whose behavior you didn't like. What happened on 4chan in the early mid-2000s is that participants started to use the word troll to describe themselves, that it was an identity. And through a very strange process of media amplification over about a decade, the term troll started to become more and more unwieldy as more and more people outside of the subculture used it to describe behaviors that could be anything from, you know, violent misogyny and white supremacy to kind of playing jokes on people. So, you know, I, I, of course, uh, having had children, I've come across the word troll in a very particular context. So I associate troll with three things, uh, kind of threat, ugliness and hiding, you know, because trolls are people, as I understand, who hide under a bridge and want to eat you. So these three (laughs) ideas, the idea that you're hidden, the idea that you're kind of pretty unpleasant, uh, and the idea that you're n- not particularly kind of attractive to the ordinary person. Are, the, are these the key components of the concept? Well, it depends on how you're using the word. I mean, so the argument that trolls are hidden or anonymous, in in many cases they are. But 
Then you have people using the word to describe, for example, my president, who is very much not anonymous. Um, so the word gets used often in political context to talk about named, known entities who are engaging in provocative behavior. So that kind of undermines the idea that, that trolls are hidden. You know, trolling is also, the word trolling is used to describe behaviors that some of them are very unpleasant and even borderline illegal, depending on what country you're in. But it also is used to describe playful, fun mischief. And that's what makes the term so confusing and weird. And that's precisely why I try not to use it, because it's confusing. Sticking for a moment to, to the, the particular subculture that, that you identified and, and, and investigated, I'm interested in, in whether or not it was, or was it sort of self-consciously right-wing or left-wing, or was it just about uh, upsetting people? And, you know, that was the shortest route to do it. And, and secondly, uh, the story of how it, uh, it sort of started to to influence American political debate. Yeah, I mean, so this is the really um, interesting thing about early trolling spaces. So it is not the case that early trolling was apolitical, but the early trolling subculture, it did not have a very clear traditional political ideology. It wasn't clearly left or clearly right. If anything, it had a kind of politics of privilege that, you know, these were people who were engaging in the most provocative language and behavior possible for their own personal amusement. So they were not having to deal with the repercussions of what they were doing and saying, but they also held their own politics at their arm's length. They didn't have to declare a politics. They, in fact, if they showed any interest in politics, that opened you up to being trolled because you were taking things seriously. So it didn't have a clear political focus early on. Around the time of Gamergate, things started to shift. So Gamergate was an online hate and harassment campaign um, directed at, at women and people of color in the video game industry. And basically the kind of underlying provocation, resistance to political correctness and scare quotes, and just general desire to ruffle people's feathers, those elements had always been part of the subculture, but they really kind of metastasized during Gamergate. And what happened is that more and more people with a clear politics were attracted to these spaces. And so some people stepped away when things started to get a little violent, and then more people were brought to the space because they actually identified with misogyny and, and racist expression. By 2015, 4chan in particular was being used as a recruitment space for white supremacists. And so all of the, and what is tricky about this is that all of the subcultural markers, the inside jokes, the memes, those, the, the visible stuff on 4chan, that had all remained the same. It's just that the participants had changed and is when it really became kind of involved in Trump related stuff and all of the all of the issues there. What's been the, the concrete influence of uh, of this culture on on American politics? Um, has it has it really played a, a kind of instrumental role or just around the edges? Yeah, it has been in ways that are maybe a little surprising. So there have been a number of arguments that have been made that, you know, trolls helped elect Trump, that they just made outrageousness normalized, and then that helped Trump basically climb through the window of the Oval Office. That's how that argument goes. And it's it's kind of a compelling uh, narrative, but the, the data that exists actually supports a different explanation, which is that 4chan and the, quote, alt-right, they ended up having an enormous impact not because of the trolls themselves, but because of the journalists who reported on the trolls' activities. 
you could basically divide up reporters into two categories. The first category would be troll-trained reporters. So typically younger reporters who had spent their teenage years, maybe not on 4chan and maybe not as trolls, but definitely part of internet culture. They were aware of trolling and they, they kind of because of their exposure to this sort of behavior, didn't recognize early alt-right stuff as being anything different than what they were used to. So they started reporting on it sort of as a joke. It was just trolling. It was kind of business as usual for people who were familiar with online spaces. They did not know that that transformation within 4chan had taken place and that many of the participants were now actual white supremacists. So a lot of the early coverage was, ha-ha, look at all these swastikas, thinking that it was trolling as previously articulated. Um, So that helped amplify this content. And then you had the second group of reporters, typically a little bit older, who were not troll trained and who were unfamiliar with the sort of performative elements of trolling subculture. So tended to report it, not taking the performativity into account and reported it totally straight-faced. And in a lot of ways, that was appropriate and correct, because again, many of these participants were, you know, self-identifying neo-Nazis or white supremacists. The problem, though, is that it was very easy for not troll-trained reporters to be manipulated and give the trolls exactly what they wanted. You had sort of a perfect storm of people who were used to these elements in the culture and those who were not used to these elements in the culture. And it resulted in a media narrative that really normalized extremist behavior, often sort of under the very weird guise of irony. So 4chan ended up having a huge impact on the culture, but not really unto themselves. They needed a lot of mainstream help, much to their delight. Okay, so just taking a step back for a moment and and looking at the, the bigger picture. This is, a, this is a podcast about understanding the forces driving society and culture further apart. Is social media one of those forces, in your view? Does it inevitably drive people to extremes? I mean, it. yes and no. The tools of social media are highly ambivalent um, in that they can, they can go either way. But Whitney, Whitney can, I, can I challenge you on that? Because of I, I, Because... Your view, which is the technology is neutral, I don't think it's true. I think it's, its inherent characteristic is to drive people into tribes, and that is inherently problematic. Yeah, I mean, so th- I think that the tools themselves can be used for good or bad, but the tools also are so easily harnessed towards really only focusing on the bit of the conversation that you want to focus on. It is so easy to close out any conversation you don't want to hear, reducing an entire human life down to a singular GIF, right? And then you can kind of just laugh at the GIF and point at this kind of small slice of a, of a conversation that you choose to engage with. You don't have to engage with the rest. And what I didn't what I didn't understand in this, Witness, I read about it a bit more, this, is, this isn't just about, kind of, as it were, different conversations. This is about whole platforms that get colonized by a particular cultural group. So the people who who use Tumblr are fundamentally different from the people who would use 4chan. So we've created, I mean, I I kind of understand the concept of echo chamber better than I did before, which is we, it is the whole platform, the whole nature of that platform is oriented towards a pretty extreme position, which then will tend to be exacerbated. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people get in their own little bubbles and then they don't both through personal choice and then algorithms intervene. So you go to a particular, if you go to 4chan, you're sort of interested in the culture of 4chan. And so you're already self-selecting into that particular group. But if you're on Facebook, 
it's not just that people select themselves into groups. It's that social media self-selects for them. And then people often don't even know that they're in a bubble. And, and so then how are you supposed to how are you supposed to get out of it if you don't know that you're trapped? This is a dizzying existential question, <laughs> which I'm afraid we must close this fascinating discussion. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Whitney, can I just before you go, Whitney, one last question. Of course. Sure. It's quite dangerous, isn't it, to write about this stuff? <laughs> have you it, have you suffered as a consequence of talking about this stuff? Um I understood the risks of the project uh, when I took it on in in 2008, and I have uh, encountered what I expected to encounter. I left Facebook in 2010 because, so I know the risks of the work that I do, and I accept those risks. But my friends and family, they, they can't consent to that. That's not, they didn't choose to do this work. And so, you know, I try to minimize, um, my social media use so that I'm not accidentally exposing people to uh, the ugliness. Um, Although the ugliness is what I have chosen to focus on. And so, you know, when you look at ugliness, you see things that are ugly. (laughs) So that's been my last decade. Thank you for what you've done, Whitney. (laughs) Thank you very much. So, Matthew, how did you find I thought it was absolutely fascinating myself. I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting and I thought uh, it sort of connected to what you were saying earlier was her point about how uh, the sort of early culture of, of 4chan and trolling and so on was infused by kind of shallow libertarianism, that I should be able to do what I want, I should be able to express myself uh, any way I like. It's a kind of ethos of uh, of self-expression, which, of course, is wider than, than libertarianism. But, of course, if you take that too far and you just have this kind of massive bonfire of the norms where everybody can say how whatever they want in whatever fashion they like because hey that's that's we're all free free individuals then you end up with this this kind of pretty awful culture yeah no, i'm i'm interested uh, as you saying in this is in 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 how this evolves and and the reason that it evolves and and the kind of the sense in which once something is set off in a particular direction the very origins of the of the internet and and, and geeks means that there is a predisposition for this space to go in a particular direction at, at kind of moments of tension or conflict or opportunity. But I'm also really interested in, in what she said about how one responds to this and the idea that there are two responses to this phenomenon, the trolling and the kind of these 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 alt-right spaces. One is a kind of complacency that says, well, that's just what goes on there. You know, so wh- why are you so worried about it? It's just kind of young men being transgressive. And another view, which almost kind of takes it too seriously, too po-faced, and in, and in so doing, generates exactly the kind of reaction that these people want. They want people to get self-righteous. They want people to be precious. They want people to say, reading this stuff has caused me to have a kind of mental breakdown. So in a way, and it, it, you know, I wasn't bullied a great deal at school, but I was bullied at school a bit. And the thing about being bullied is a sense of being trapped, the sense that there is nothing really you can do here. You know, if you try and fight back, you'll get your face smashed in. But, but if you try to kind of make light of it or whatever, whatever you do doesn't, the reason it feels like bullying is there's nothing really you can do in the face of it. Yeah. So to, to, to say, you know, we shouldn't pay these guys attention 
is fine with them because then they can just get on doing what they do. Um, to pay them too much attention is also fine with them. I don't know what 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 the what the right attitude is, but yeah, like you say, they kind of want already. It's interesting, I think, and somewhat depressing that, that, that generally speaking, when you have conversations which in which technology plays a role. The person you're talking to is an expert. Will want to say at the end, but look, there's something good coming along. There's an answer to this. You know, I've been talking to these innovators. I, did, I mean, maybe we cut her off too early, but I didn't get a sense that she was saying, but don't worry, there's a new approach to social media or the public are becoming more sophisticated, you know, because one of the, the only bits of hope you can have in this is in a sense, we've created the possibility for all this crap to take place online. In the end, people just get bored with it. The, the, the being countercultural, being transgressive, in the end, it does get a bit tedious and that people will just go, I mean, in a way, it sounds like a very tiny response to it, but it just goes out of fashion. Do you, yeah, think, I mean, do you think there's hope there? I, I think I think there is hope hope there. I mean, I couldn't actually point my finger at anything specific, any specific development and say, look, you know, I think this is where things are going. So in that sense, I'm not uh, kind of optimistic about it. But I am optimistic in the in the sense that I, I just think this is a very, very young medium, a very young, uh, you know, new way for us to communicate with each other. Um, it, it hasn't sort of settled here. The idea that this is, this is kind of where online political culture uh, has has settled and it's going to be like this forever just, just, just doesn't seem right to me. I think we've got a few more mutations and developments to go yet and one or two of them might not be so awful. Before we go, we end each episode with a provocation, something that's shifted the way that we look at the world just a little bit. Matthew, what have you read in the last week that's done that? Well, I'll tell you in what I've been kind of gassing on about over the weekend, and it's a contrast, really. I I went to an event last week discussing a book about the refugee crisis, Um, and then I spoke to somebody who'd been to another event, very similar, actually one of the authors was at the other end of an LRB, London Review Books event. And these are writers writing in a principled and brave way about the nature of the refugee crisis. But the point that that struck me and that struck my friend who'd been to a similar event was that there was a sense in which had anybody in those events said, yes, but what about the practical questions of how it is we distinguish between refugees and migrants, how we respond to public worries about immigration, to to even have asked those questions would have been to signal oneself out as somebody who didn't really have a heart, who didn't really understand what was being said, who was kind of reactionary. And, And I think that's problematic. It's problematic when journalism doesn't even want to engage with the kinds of questions that policymakers have to think about. And I contrast that with Andrew O'Hagan's piece, also in the London Review of Books, which got a lot of coverage, a 65,000-word-long account of what took place around Grenfell uh, Tower, in which he said some things that people didn't expect to be said. And one of the things he said is that Kenton and Chelsea Council is not the kind of caricature, evil, uncaring Tory organisation that it's been represented as, and that possibly blame for what happened in Grenfell Tower is more diffuse and possibly there were mistakes made by the emergency uh, agencies as well. And I just thought O'Hagan has been willing to say difficult things and put himself in the position of people who have to actually make decisions. And that, for me, is what we need. We're talking here about polarisation. That's what we need to overcome polarisation. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the O'Hagan piece. Uh, normally, that wouldn't stop me from offering an opinion on it, but I'm, I'm going to be restrained. But I, I know that, that that some people, some journalists have questioned its uh, the account that he gives. So he, he kind of presents an alternative narrative to, to the one that's been... 
without reading, I, I can't kind of give you a view on my view on on whether or not. But you take been... my point about the fact that journalists need to be willing to say things that their that their favoured audience doesn't want to hear. I, I think I think that's right. I think, and I think the point that we are very kind of um, vulnerable to powerful narratives, powerful stories that we that, that then we see the facts through the prism of that that story. And at the very least, what he's done is offer a different story. Now, those those, those kind of stories can then fight it out. But up until now, I think you're right. There was kind of a, a unitary story about what happened to Grenfell and it needed to be kind of questioned. Great. Well, that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. And if you want to get in touch to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can email us on rsa.radio at rsa.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter. Ian is at Mr. Ian Leslie, and I'm at RSA Matthew. But please, don't troll us. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA. RSA.